You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Hey, Rebecca. What, Kevin? Big week. Oh, my God. So big with the true crime updates. True crime updates. A serial spinoff? Potentially. The verdict comes in in the Justin Ross Harris case? Yeah, I know. Brendan Dassey gets out of jail and then, like, maybe doesn't get out of jail? Yeah, crazy. And we're going to be talking about that this week, right? No. Oh, no. Why not? (laughs) We're not going to be talking about that this week because we actually recorded this episode last weekend. Yes. (laughs) Before all this stuff went down because we had an opportunity to record a live episode, which you'll hear in just a minute in front of a live audience. And... None of this had actually happened yet. Yeah, who, who would have thought it was going to be this busy a week? But, okay, so that's this week. So uh, we'll be able to do it next week, right? No. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Because we're taking the week off for Thanksgiving. Oh, damn you pilgrims. <laughs> but we will be back the week after next week, I promise. We will have so much to talk about. So many true crime updates. True crime <laughs> so many developments. We'll talk about some new media that's going on around true crime we have a lot to say so bear with us guys right so if you're looking for homework to do like while you're going through the woods to grandma's house some podcasts you can listen to you can get caught up on offshore you can get through breakdown if you haven't started it just pick it up from after the jury selection up and vanish to something mm-hmm. that you can continue to listen to and well watch westworld and watch Westworld. <laughs> I'm not sure we'll be talking about all those things. Also send us your recommendations because we're going to need some podcasts to listen to when we're driving to grandmother's house. So I guess we should still roll it. Let's roll it. And we'll see you in two weeks. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, an on-location conversation taped at the New England Crime Bake. This is a conference for crime and mystery writers taking place in Dedham, Massachusetts. And joining me right now is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. I have to be nice to you because there's a big room of people watching. <laughs> That's true. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and as we know, certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. And finally, it's our own king of skepticism, the amazing noir novelist, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. V. Gates, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) V. Gates, you're inspired by Germany this evening, Toby. I am. All right, now, Toby, we are at the Crime Bake. This is a two-day conference for crime and mystery writers in the Northeast. You are the busiest of the four of us at this conference. You have a lot of expertise. You've been on a lot of panels. You're doing a lot of stuff. What are you doing here at the conference? I was on a panel about historical mysteries. I'm doing some manuscript critiques. I'm doing this. I'm doing the panel tomorrow on um, podcast. You're not really doing this, by the way. <laughs> and I'm drinking a lot of water. <laughs> now, here's, here's the thing, though. I feel like of the four of us, I mean, you're the only fiction writer among us. Right. Professional fiction writer with books that have been positively reviewed and critiqued. And you've been on a few lists as one of like the great novels that people should read in this genre. Mm -hmm. You're basically like a star at this conference doing a lot of stuff. How does that feel? Um, I'm trying to keep humble. (laughs) That's real news to everybody in the room. (laughs) Wait, who's this guy? Um, No, it's fun. it's, It's fun just being around other people who are writing and thinking about writing. It's it's not something that happens during my, you know, day-to-day experience. Um, you know, I don't hang around with, with writers for the most part, so. Now, Laura, how do you feel about being in the presence of a conference superstar like Toby Ball? Well, I mean, I can carry his bags for him, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. Get his drinks. <laughs> so I have a question for you, Laura. Yes. Now, our audience doesn't know this. I know most of our audience does not listen to our podcast. But last week on the show, we talked a little bit about, and our personal lives do come into the podcast a little bit because that's how it works. Laura's cat has chlamydia. And uh, I know that might sound shocking. <laughs> But for cats, you could only see the faces in the room. Yes, <laughs> but for cats, that actually means it's like an eye problem. 
But of course, we turned it into something else on this show. How is Stampy doing? Um, well, so Stampy was alone for four days last weekend when I was gone. Uh, I don't think Stampy was alone if you got chlamydia. <laughs> uh, but it's not. It's actually apparently like a respiratory infection in cats. But the day that we went to the vet, I was concerned he might lose his eye. Now his eye is, is partially open and coming back. So, And today he started bitching and complaining because he wanted to go out. So I think that's a good sign. I mean, maybe he's going out to get more chlamydia. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. So Kevin, yeah, how do you feel? I mean, you presented on a panel today called what? Running in packs. What does that mean? It was about ways that, that writers can group together to promote their own works. And we have a lot of people that were professional writers who were blogging together in groups. And so we, as a, I guess we're a pack, the four of us, and I was representing podcasting. So why don't you talk a little bit about how this pack of four writers got together to this podcast? I mean, this is something that we get questions about a lot, and I'm sure we're going to get questions about it when we do our panel tomorrow about podcasting as writers, but you how, did give this, the origin story? how did this pack get together? Well, we were talking uh, originally about how we were a, a podcast based on serial and as Syria was was being lauded and it was it was a big cultural thing, about halfway through their season, I turned to you and I said, we should do a podcast about Serial, and it should be from the view of some professional writers, and we should call it Crime Writers on Serial, and we should do it by Friday. <laughs> and so you said, yeah, let's do it, and uh, we said we need a panel, and so I, I knew uh, Laura from a panel that we had done, and I knew that she was local to us as a, as a true crime writer, and there was, uh, and, and Laura recommended Toby. And I didn't remember, but the three of us had been on a panel. I didn't remember Toby being on the panel, but it was a while ago. But the three of us had been on a panel together. And so we got together around one of the radio station studios. You're at the New Hampshire Public Radio. And that's how we kind of laid down the first tracks. That's right. And we did our first season of podcasts about the podcast serial. And then we really, I think, found our voice when we started talking about other media around crime, things like The Jinx, things like The Staircase. We started talking about television shows like House of Cards, for instance. I was looking through our past episodes today. And recently, in between seasons of Serial, we've been talking about other podcasts. Now, we actually have gotten some negative critique about our discussions about other podcasts. And Kevin, um, I don't know how you want to deal with this one because a few months ago we talked about a podcast, Bowerville, mm-hmm. which Toby loved. It was about true crime. Do you want to remind our, just tell our audience here what Bowerville was about, Toby? So uh, Bowerville is an uh, Australian podcast and it was about the murder of some Aborigine youth pretty clearly by this one Australian guy who lived in this tiny town of Bowerville. And just how it wasn't taken very seriously. The police did not investigate it very aggressively to the point where people were pretty sure who had done it, but they didn't do anything to try and arrest him. So that that was what this podcast was about. It had some interesting stuff about, you know, racism against Aboriginal people in Australia. Now, did we talk about anything negatively about Australian accents when we were talking about Bowerville? Whenever I tried to do an Australian accent, you would say I was being racist against Australians. (laughs) It's true, but I just want to let you know, I think one of our uh, listeners in Australia, Susan, maybe didn't get what it was we were doing. She says, I'm telling you I wasn't very pleased to hear such negative criticism of the Australian accents on the Bowerville podcast. I found it patronizing, with an S, by the way, and arrogant. To preserve my integrity, I therefore won't tell you what many Australians think of the American accent. Oh, I want to know. <laughs> Toby, what do you think of the American accent? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting piece of feedback. We get a lot of feedback, obviously, from our fans. We get tweets. We get emails. We actually got another one. Laura, I'm going to send this one your way. Oh boy. Team, otherwise known as the best friends I've never met. This is from Sarah from Lincoln, Nebraska. I just wanted to reach out and share how much I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yours is by far my favorite From Toby and the Amazon Purchases, I'm on the side of solo Toby with slow music and no interruptions. (laughs) To your fantastic voices, pure dry humor, I find myself bursting out loud laughing during much of my commute like a freak on the interstate because you are so funny. If you ever make a road trip to Nebraska or want to do a live podcast here, you have a lot of fans. So, Laura, 
You go on a lot of vacations. I do. Is Nebraska on your list? It is not. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was close to Nebraska when I was researching my book. I was in Missouri, and there was a woman that had moved to Nebraska that I needed to interview, but I ended up doing a phone interview. But, um, I mean, she could sell us on Nebraska. I mean, like, is there some good wine there or something? Cats? I mean, something that would lure me to Nebraska. All right. So we need more Nebraska what? salesmanship yeah yeah we need some information like what could we do we need an itinerary we should call the, call the chamber of commerce and see if they'll send us some pamphlets <laughs> and maybe like see what airlines fly to nebraska from where we live because it might not be is this listener going to foot the bill <laughs> that's a good question we'll all go yeah. All right. So we have a piece of feedback about our gossiping about Serial Season 3. Last week, we talked about what had been written in the Baltimore Sun about a potential story in Serial Season 3. It's a trial going on in Cleveland. Sarah Koenig and Dana Chivas were spotted there going to this trial, taping audio from the trial. And we speculated a little bit on whether or not they were going to do another crime case in Serial for Season 3. We got a tweet from Anastasia Zucchero who says, thank the gods there is a season three because season two was so boring. So like 10 O's in that? I'm pronouncing it that way. That's how it was spelled. Now looking back, does anyone on this panel want to join Anastasia in saying that serial season two was boring? I mean, Kevin, how do you feel about that comment? I don't think it was boring. I think that it was a shock to a lot of fans because it wasn't the Adnan story or something like that. You did have an interesting character in Bo Bergdahl, but what was missing was the relationship that Sarah had with Adnan because the relationship that Bo had was with this other documentarian. So we got it sort of secondhand or thirdhand, I guess. And while it was a very interesting story and it lived up to what the original premise of Serial was, which is to take a story and tell it over 10, 11, 12 episodes... It really wasn't what people were expecting. And I also think that there may be, you know, it was difficult because it's also touching on some third rails here with with impressions of the military and patriotism and uh, loyalty and whatnot. And it it really isn't about, it isn't about the civilian criminal justice system. It's a good story about the military justice system, but a lot of people just didn't see it that way. So no, I didn't think it was boring. I thought it was very informative. What do you think, Toby? Toby? I agree with Kevin about I think the lack of a central sort of sympathetic figure like Adnan was really missing from season two. Season one was like an intimate story, right? Because there there was a limited number of people. The scope was really around Baltimore. And so it was easy to kind of follow that plot. And when season two with Bo Bergdahl, you know, they talked about zooming in and zooming out. At times, it was, you know, on the national level was the scope you were looking at. So I think that was another. I I mean, I didn't find it boring, but it wasn't like as compelling as season one was. I didn't feel like when an episode ended, like I couldn't wait for the next episode, which was the way it was in season one. Season two was like, oh, well, I guess there'll be another one in a couple weeks. What did you think, Laura, when you heard when you heard this comment that serial season two was boring? Well, I think it was just a different experience in season one. I mean, it took me a while to get into season two. It was definitely, I kept waiting for like the big picture, the big aha moment. And like Kevin said, you know, it was definitely a couple steps removed in that we didn't have Sarah Koenig having this direct relationship with Bo Bergdahl. But for me, season two really became more of kind of like a big picture message kind of story. And it's well done. So of course, you know, you want to listen to it. But, you know, I think it was just... Season one was the first that anybody had heard a podcast of that type. And so I think it really hit people differently. And I think we have a lot higher expectations now after season one. Now, Kevin, I have a question for you. Yeah. You're a longtime reporter. You were a TV reporter for many, many years. You're a radio reporter before that. You're a seasoned journalist. Okay. Do I'll you? I'll take th- your word on that. <laughs> Uh, Sarah Koenig in Serial Season 2, one of her characters that she interviewed is now part of the national conversation. Do you know who I'm talking about? about General Mike Flynn? General Mike Flynn. Right. Sarah Koenig has tape of General Mike Flynn talking about myriad issues around this case. Yeah. And now this case is back in the news because Bo Bergdahl's lawyers believe that it is impossible for him to get a fair trial now that Trump has been elected president. Do you want to just explain a little bit of the context of what I'm talking about, about that piece of news? Yeah, and this is something we talked a lot about with James Wyrick, who is our military justice 
expert, uh, former Marine judge advocate. His following of the ca- the defense's case in in the Bergdahl trial is that because people like John McCain and candidate Donald Trump had made statements publicly that there ought to be some punishment for Bergdahl, and because they hold positions of power, that that would cause undue command influence, which is the military version of sort of, you know, you know, your right to a fair trial. And there were like Senate hearings about the Bergdahl case. That's true. Yeah. So so right now, we they believe the latest um, that we hear from the Bergdahl defense team is that they now like completely don't believe that Bergdahl can get a fair trial because should the convening authority, which is the military equivalent of the judge, not come down with as harsh a sentence as some people would think, then there's fear of retribution from hires up. Right. And we should mention that Donald Trump, during the primary in New Hampshire, on the campaign trail, used Bo Bergdahl as an example in his speeches. He said that we should, I believe he said, fly over a desert and drop Bo Bergdahl out of a helicopter. He actually said at a campaign event in New Hampshire. And the yeah, president so of the United States is, in fact, in charge of the military, correct? Yeah, that's commander-in-chief. That's the right title. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. W- what do you think of this idea that Bo Bergdahl can't get a fair trial? Do you agree? Like we said from the beginning, Bergdahl has not disputed the fact that he walked away from his post. He went AWOL and then was captured. And whether you're splitting hairs about whether or not that's desertion or gross dereliction of duty— it really is still going to come down to just what is the sentencing, right. because the defense is not disputing that. So in a lot of similar cases, the sentence is less than a year. And then there's you know sort of this public outcry that he should be shot as a deserter and everything in between. So if it's anything sort of out of the ordinary of, of, of what a, a typical sentence for this kind of case would be, I mean, I think it sort of raises the specter that you know, there was outside pressure to make it so. All right, so here's my journalism question. I'm going to go down the panel with this. I'm going to start with you, Kevin. Yeah. Sarah Koenig has interviews with Mike Flynn about Bo Bergdahl. Right. Mike Flynn is now being, his name is being floated as a cabinet member in the Trump administration. Yeah. Do you think Sarah Koenig should report a story that relates to Serial Season 2 and Bo Bergdahl in which she uses some of that Mike Flynn tape? Would you do it? I well, I don't know if she needs to because she used it. And she the, the quote from Mike Flynn, I mean, it was essentially that, if somebody walked down a road while they were on a mission anywhere near, wh- whether or not they were looking for Bo Bergdahl or not, and that guy was wounded, it's directly attributable to Bo Bergdahl. He was talking about connecting dots. He was connecting dots. Dots, by the way, Whether that- or not that they were there, right? Those missions that where people were injured were not connected to Bergdahl. He's already basically made the statement that he feels that way. You know, I don't think it's Sarah's case to make. I think it's Bergdahl's defense case. But I'm just saying, what do you think would be a good story? Yes or no? Perhaps, but I, it doesn't. it's not news. What do you think, Toby? It seems to me to be pretty small scale that the fate of this one soldier, which is, you know, it's interesting, but in terms of fitness for the position, I, I agree with Kevin in that it seems mostly germane to Bergdahl's sentencing. I'll tell you, I mean, I work in journalism. I would do at least a blog post about it. Like, here's what Flynn said about Bergdahl. Maybe include some tape that wasn't included in Serial. Here's what he said. Can Bergdahl get a fair trial? I do think Sarah, in some way, owns part of the story. Am, am I wrong to, to think that she owns a little bit of the story and, and, and could report? I'm not saying she should, but that she could. Laura, what do you think? I, she could, but I don't really think that's Sarah's M.O. I mean, her M.O. is doing these long projects. And, and even when she did Serial, and even when she did season two of Serial, she really stays away from, I feel like, making a judgment call on things. She leaves that to people to make their own decisions. But I don't, I don't necessarily see her in this particular journalistic role. I think if she was more in a news-oriented program, I could see her doing something like this, but I see her more as like a special projects reporter. I would probably do it, but I don't see, you know, if I was in a news position, but I think she's she's a little bit in a different role here. I'm going to move on and talk about a little bit about our podcast from last week. We talked about Up and Vanished, that podcast from Payne Lindsay in Atlanta, Georgia, about Tara Grinstead, that missing beauty queen from Osceola, Georgia. 
Now, if you listen to our podcast, you know that I talked to Payne. I got to know him a little bit. I was sort of up on the podcast a little bit. You were, uh, I believe, a thumbs up. You were an enthusiastic thumbs up. We had one thumb sideways, and that was Kevin. That was me. Thumb sideways. And Kevin, we did get some feedback from a listener, and I'm just going to read this. This is an email from a listener named Aaron. Sounds like Kevin is jealous of pain. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Kevin clearly doesn't connect with millennials. It makes him sound (laughs) old and out of touch. Payne never promised to solve the mystery, and Serial didn't. Kevin needs to put his jealousy aside and stop sounding like a grumpy old man. Oh. We have to respond to that, Kevin. I am a grumpy old man. <laughs> I, I'm not going to change for Aaron. Is it Aaron? Aaron, yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, like you said, I said, I wish Payne well, and I think that he's shown a lot of restraint in the areas where a lot of these amateur sleuths go wrong. And I sense that unlike Missing Maura Murray or somebody knows something I think that there's potential that there's something there but he hasn't delivered it to me yet and I think that what I would point to is that we had a lot of Twitter followers who were telling us urgent you've got to get on up and vanished and talk about it and after we did it we've been getting a lot of Twitter responses from other listeners who are saying I don't I don't care for this right so I think it's a mixed bag but I, I keep saying let's give this time he's promising something more you know, a good ending can really vindicate a, a mediocre or meandering journey. Well, we did get another email from Tom from sunny Northern Ireland. Not, by the way, the country that you insulted, Toby, right? You insulted the other one. <laughs> I think I insulted all, all Irish people. And, and Tom says, I'm a longtime listener and first-time writer. After listening to the latest episode, I just had to write in about Up and Vanished. First, let me say I enjoy your podcast, respect your opinions, but I completely disagree about Up and Vanished. I find it to be amateurish. He goes on and on, and then he gives a list of things he doesn't like. Toby, do you just want to respond to the idea that sometimes we will feel differently than our listeners and maybe that, you know, the fact that we do have this, like, unique role of commenting on the media around crime, how does it feel to you when you hear a listener just say, like, I don't agree with you at all? You're wrong. Yeah, it's too bad his opinion is wrong. (laughs) Well, I think the thing is, from my standpoint, especially with Up and Vanished, you know, we've, we've been hearing so many really professionally produced podcasts with very competent journalists. And, you know, it's just a very polished, mature product, which, you know, I like. But I think the nice thing about Up and Vanish is that the fact that it's just this guy and like literally some of his friends doing this podcast instead of having a major newspaper behind him or a, a radio station or something like that. To me, that change in tone a little bit, like I'm willing to forgive like a little bit of the you know lack of polished professionalism because I mean, I think of all, you know, and I don't want to, you know, make any inferences about other podcasts, but for all the ones that are sort of like these citizen investigator podcasts, To me, this one is, you know, it's got its charms. Uh, It seems to me to be done in a way that is sort of morally defensible. It doesn't seem to me like he is trying to put somebody in the picture. He's genuinely digging for things. The other thing, which which Kevin talked about a minute ago. Don't blame this on me. (laughs) And just for, you know, people in the audience who haven't listened to our our podcast before, but one of the things we end up talking about quite a bit, and this was the case in Serial and several other podcasts, is that people really like this idea of we're investigating in real time. So, like, they'll, they'll cut a podcast one week, and then the next week, like, something might have happened in between. And so sort of the, you know, the the grail is that you're investigating this thing in real time. And at the end, you actually solve it or you you identify somebody who's a plausible suspect. But the flip side of that is, you know, you may not. And you, you know? also may do a bunch of libelous and irresponsible right. things. So you, so you can blessed. do that. You can be throwing <laughs> wild allegations. There was one uh, very, you know, technically well done podcast called Somebody Knows Something. And in fact, it turned out nobody knew anything because, you know, it was it was six or eight, like very well written, you know, beautifully produced podcasts. But in the end, nothing happened. So one of the questions is, can you have a successful podcast like this without having at the end, like saying this is what happened or having some kind of new insight? And I think my argument is 
this podcast up and vanished. There's enough stuff going on. There's enough storylines. There's enough uh, interesting personalities and the sort of investigative steps that Payne himself takes that I think even if he doesn't, he isn't able to make any kind of break in the case, the journey and seeing what he's doing, I think is compelling enough that at the end he doesn't have to be able to say, it was Jeff with a candlestick in the <laughs> conservatory or something. Does it make you feel bad when listeners disagree with you, Toby? Yes or no? Does it make me feel bad? Yeah. It makes me feel bad for them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura, we have a listener with a suggestion for a TV show. I don't know if you've watched it or not. Okay. Called The Fall, which is on Netflix. I haven't, but a lot of people have been tweeting at me about this show. The Fall's awesome. It stars Jillian Anderson and Jamie Dornan, pre-50 Shades, this listener says, uh, and centers around a detective trying to catch a serial killer in Belfast. I will tell you... Kevin and I started watching The Fall. I chickened out. I was too scared. It is very scary. So, Laura, can you watch that for us and report back? I don't know. I mean, I got scared in uh, Stranger Things this summer for crying out loud. I don't know <laughs> if I can do The Fall. But, I mean, I'll try it. I just started watching The Crown on Netflix, which is also pretty good. But I will, I'll give The Fall a try. If I get too scared, um, maybe Toby will have to do I, it. I've seen The Fall already. Will was I it? be scared, Toby? Will I be able to handle it? No. <laughs> no, it's no there I mean for the most part it's not there are a few like very very harrowing scenes that are not the kind of thing that you would expect to see on American network television. Well, that's British crime though. In British crime things happen that you don't well, I mean I think, anybody yeah. here uh, a fan of British crime TV shows? Yeah. Do you agree that they are scarier than American crime TV shows? Like Luther is scary. Right. Sherlock mm. is sometimes really scary in a way that like our sh like law and order is not actually scary. It's just, yeah. you know, procedural. Well, th this has got a couple of very, um, very intense scenes of murder. Yeah. Well, but, it, but, it, but it's like <laughs> but but it's like but it's not like it, it's it's a particularly scary home invasion. Yeah. Woman by herself. Very intimate. And then and then, you know, you just kind of watch what happens and. It's powerful and it's disturbing in right. a way that I just don't think you're used to seeing on television. The program's really well written. The actors are really good. I think Jillian Anderson's accent is terrible, but you forgive her for it because she's good. Yeah, because she's she's uh, <laughs> she slips in and out Scolder of it like a prime dress. Scully, yeah, yeah, Scully. Oh. Um, mm. So anyway, yeah, it, it, it's good, but you do have to be willing to sit through some some harrowing cool. stuff and you know if that bothers you then I definitely would not watch it. Well, I think what's difficult about it is it's an open mystery as we've talked about the difference between an open mystery and a closed mystery. You know from episode 1 who the purpose, you know who it is. And you also see him living his regular life. Oh. In addition to being a horrible stalker slash killer. It is very, to me, that's more frightening. Laura, do you find that kind of stuff frightening? I do. I think I'll wait for season three of Happy Valley. Uh, <laughs> happy Valley, by the way, is very scary, it's too. It's depressing, though. And, but it's yeah, more depressing. Spoiler alert, no than, one's happy. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like a depressing suicidal valley, but um, yeah. All right, Kevin, I have a question for you. Yeah. Somebody has a, a question about Serial Season 1. We haven't gotten a question about Serial oh. Season 1 in a really long time, so okay. I'm going to throw this your way. I've had a burning question since Serial. This is from Mary in Michigan. Uh, as well as all other podcasts I've heard and stories I've read about the Heyman Lee case. I've never wanted to bother anyone with it, but I scream it out every time I hear this fact mentioned. My husband is sick of it, so I'm just going to ask you guys. Apparently, we're the repository oh. of a spousal disagreement. If Jay was such a big drug dealer that he was worried about going to jail for it, then why, pray tell, did he spend the entire day of Heyman Lee's death looking for pot, according to his own story? Do you have an answer for that, Kevin? Uh, I guess if you were talking to the police, being a dealer and being a uh, purchaser are two different crimes. If we go back and believe what he says modern day from his interview in The Intercept, we might conclude that the reason he did not want to admit to dealing drugs is because he was living with his grandmother in federal housing, and if he was arrested, she would lose her housing. But if he were arrested for smoking dope or purchasing dope, I don't know, but my, my suspicion is that it doesn't affect what happens with his grandmother. So you believe it has to do with the fact that he was talking to the cops or what they were what the they cops. were eliciting him to say, as some may believe like his entire confession was elicited, like you believe it has to do with that dynamic. Yeah, I think I think he's sort of copying to a lesser charge so as to mitigate, you know, the consequences of that. Sometimes you really, you know, you'll do anything you can to to kind of cover up the things that you don't like about yourself, which is why a lot of times people who are looking to color their hair will turn to Madison Reed. <laughs> 
You can make luxurious at-home hair color with ingredients you can feel good about. This is an ad, guys. This is an ad. <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> you know, Madison Reed is made with ingredients uh, you can feel good about. They have the first ever six free permanent hair color. It's free of ammonia, parabens, resorcinol, PPD, philothate. Anybody know what a philothate is? No. No, one no it's not, not good, good for your hair. It's not good. And sometimes it also includes gluten. So they don't have that. Madison Reed delivers salon quality color to the convenience of your home. You can choose from over 40 luxurious shades. Rebecca, show the audience your beautiful hair color. Is that Madison Reed? It is. actually is. I got a box in the mail from Madison Reed. I tried it. I liked it. Crafted in Italy, just outside of Milan, their luxurious hair color is infused with nutrient-rich carotene, argan oil, and ginseng root extract to protect and pamper your hair like never before. Try it. Love it. Satisfaction guaranteed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with code WRITERS. That's madison-reed.com, code writers. writers. Code writers. Writers. Why don't you tell us about who else has sponsored our show this week? Yeah, we're being sponsored by our friends from Earwolf. They have a new podcast coming out, and it's called Stranglers. Now, you guys have heard of the Boston Strangler, right? Yes. This is um, one of the most infamous crimes in Boston. It happened between 1962 and 1964. There were 13 women who were murdered, and the killings seemed random, but the city really was terrified. It was, you know, a mad killer on the loose. And even 50 years later, Boston really hasn't been the same when it comes to this crime. And 50 years later, there's still questions about who did it. Questions about who did it? Still? Yeah, even though somebody went to jail. So in this new podcast, you'll hear from victims, detectives, and journalists who are close to the case and meet the investigators who are still on the job. And you'll even hear the voice of the alleged killer whose jailhouse confession raised more questions than it answered. It's the original audio investigation into the Boston Strangler. Subscribe to Stranglers on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. What's the name of the podcast? Stranglers. 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 All right, now we are at a writer's conference. Code writers. So I want to do something with the second half of this podcast that we've never done before. We had a lot of questions about it. I want to do a little bit of a writer's workshop. We have a lot of writers in the room. Who here among you is an active writer? Who here among you is a published active writer? And who here among you is a writer who wrote something in the last two weeks? Oh, yeah, this is... <laughs> I mean, laugh you, Kevin. We've written? You just mean Actually writing written. in general? <laughs> just like a, a couple published words? published in two weeks? Or? Uh, written. Have you written anything? Aside from I stuff you had to write for yeah, work. Everybody. I have. Well, I wrote for work, but I wrote like some newspaper stories. All right. Well, I we're wrote the crime of the week. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to do a little bit of a writer's workshop now. I want to ask you guys some questions about writing and the process and crime specifically, and also uh, fiction, mm-hmm. uh, mystery fiction. Laura Bricker, when you were growing up, and you were in Vermont, and you were riding horses, and all the stuff we've heard about your childhood. <laughs> Did you know you wanted to be a writer or be a person who wrote for a living? Uh, you know, I didn't. I always wrote, and it was something I always did, but I actually was going to grow up and be like a riding instructor, which really isn't a real lucrative career, but, you know. Oh, but ri- writing Cause, is. Because writing is. But <laughs> um, but I was in like my third year of college, and I started having a lot of horse accidents and um, decided I needed a backup plan because I thought I was heading for a body cast. And I thought, you know what, I can probably write in a body cast with my mouth. So I decided to minor in journalism at that point. What about you, Toby? Did you always know you were going to be a writer when you grew up? Uh, no. I mean, I, I read a lot, and my mom was an English teacher. But I really started writing when I was 30, and we moved up from Washington, D.C. to New Hampshire and had no friends. And so that was kind of, you know. What's I changed? Could, yeah, so I know. sad, Toby. <laughs> and I continue to write. Toby, I'll um, be your friend. <laughs> oh, thanks. It, it seemed like... I could spend a lot of time watching TV or, and I was getting my master's at the time too. So anyway, I just kind of made the decisions like if I'm going to ever try and write something, like this seems to be the moment. So that's when I did it. I'm really surprised to hear that because you have a, tr- like a trilogy of novels that now our audience might not know this, but like Kevin, Laura and I are all true crime writers. We're also all journalists. So we sort of have that ability to sort of like bang stuff out. Toby's novels, they're like, 
<laughs> Sorry, guys. They're like real books. They're like real <laughs> books with like beautiful covers. And like I read the first few pages of Toby's first book and I like woke Kevin up because he was sleeping and I was like, oh my God, we've been podcasting with this guy for a year. And like he's a real like you have an imagination you you didn't just write something you actually created something brand new it's not like you wrote a mystery series that takes place in a town just like your town you mm-hmm. did something completely different and really imaginative it, it takes place in a it's sort of a, a historical novel that's sort of dystopian and futuristic at the same time as being historical it's incredibly creative that wasn't just living inside of you this whole time no. So when I was writing The Vaults, like I'd already written a, a, a manuscript that nobody wanted. For what was that about? It was about identity theft. It was like one of those things where I later read like top 10 mistakes that first time authors make. And it's just like right down the line. Like, <laughs> bang, 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 bang. like what was one of the mistakes that you made? Uh, you know, I was front loading too much information. You know, I was like starting off really fast and then slowing down in the middle and picking up again at the end. I mean, it's just like it was just all these kinds of things. So after after that and, and I thought, you know, I'm going to try one more time and it's going to be something that I really want to do. And this was during the Iraq war. And so this was at a time when like the, the justification for us being there kept changing. Right. And then it was, you know, some people would kind of question it, but it, it kind of got passed over. It was like, you know, there's weapons of mass destruction. Well, actually, Saddam Hussein himself is a weapon of mass destruction. And, you know, there's all these different the rape rooms. And so I wanted to write something about the importance of having a sort of a societal memory and holding people to account for things that have happened and not letting it kind of get brushed under the rug and, and have things move on. So I kind of had this uh, that idea and then I was like, this sounds like a really painful book to actually have to read. So I was like, how do you make this kind of fun? And that was when, I, I think I was watching a bunch of noir movies maybe, but my thought was, okay, maybe set it in the 30s, give it like a really strong noir feel that will kind of make it a little more palatable and a little bit more fun than just my sort of angrily talking about how... The stuff that makes you mad. Yeah, and just kind of go with it. Sounds like a lot of work, Toby. And I can't believe... The fact that you didn't want to do this for a long time just like really surprises me when I hear you kind of... Even just talking through your process, right? Kevin, am I wrong? It sounds like what Toby did is a lot harder than what we've done in in some ways. Yes. (laughs) So, Toby, do you enjoy writing? Do you like sitting down and writing? Nobody enjoys writing. I want to hear Toby answer that question. Toby, how do you feel? Does anybody actually enjoy writing... You you do one person one oh no oh I mean not being a writer but just see the oh I actually enjoy writing really okay yeah well, I, I guess it's, it's just me I guess I'm on the wrong meds or something <laughs> you know I think I, I assume that most writers feel the same way is when things are going well it's awesome right like you just can't wait to sit down and start banging on the uh, on the keyboard and when things aren't going well and like I've had like the last year year and a half you know I've had the story that I want to tell and I just haven't been able to, it sounds, this is like the kind of thing that drives me crazy when other people say it, but I haven't been able to find like how to access that story in a way that's going to be compelling to people. So it's been a lot of time thinking about who the characters are going to be involved. You know, what's the point of view going to be like, even to the point of like, what's the atmosphere going to be? Is it going to be like pretty dark? Like, especially my first book, or is it going to be, sort of more matter of fact. It's it's the first one that I'm trying to do that's contemporary. During this period, maybe it's just me, but I assume that other people, like when you're struggling with that, it's hard. You're trying to go to bed and I have mild insomnia, but I just lie there. I'm like, all right. And you just try and think and go through it and go through it and go through it. And it was like a year, year and a half before I finally like came up. So that part is not fun. But once you like have an idea of what you're going to write. Right. And, you know, when you're chomping at the bit to sit down and, and, and write for the, in my case, two hours that I have between eight and ten, you know, then it's, then it's a lot of fun. Now, I think everybody in the room understands that. Now, Kevin, it's, it's interesting because the difference between a novelist and a nonfiction writer like us is he actually has to finish the novel, like, before he can sell it, right? Toby, is that where you're at right now? Or are you at a point right now where you have an option? Like, if you have a novel and you're working on it, can you sell it when it's not finished? In theory, like, you can write, like, half of it and right. have an outline for the other half. I mean, the only way it's worked for me where I had a book that was on contract is that I my first, 
when I sold the vaults, it was for a two book contract. Right, right. So that second one, and that's a that's a kind of people in this room would understand it, but but most people like the idea that it's like okay, in a year I want another book. <laughs> And up until that time, it's been like, you know, it was a hobby. You know, right. I was doing it kind of when I felt like. And then suddenly it's like, bang, I need another book on this day. It's like, oh, my God, where do I even start? And, right. uh, you have and your you have whole to, life to write your first book in one year. To and write you have to your make second. it up, unlike us, where we have a case that we're working on. Now, Kevin, um, you know, I, I do want you to talk about the little nonfiction experience and how different it is. But did you always know you wanted to be a writer? I don't know. I, I, as, a, as a child, I was fascinated by the typewriter that we had. And like the mechanics? Yeah, you know, and, and you know, you'd put a piece of paper in and t- type it, whatever, and it would come out, and it would sort of, you know, look, it looked different than your handwriting. I don't want to say it looked professional or, or like it had been published or, or really printed, but yeah, I kind of got fascinated, and I would henpeck at the, uh, at the keys and whatnot, and I just sort of, I think in some ways you feel like you got lucky that you have that skill and were able to refine it. I never, in high school, I would just write and do whatever. It wasn't until I got into college and my English teacher said, oh, you're a really good writer. And I'm like, I am? I just thought I was now, writing. Now, I'm, I'm going to call BS on you a little bit because I've actually uh, read stories that you wrote in high school. You wrote stories you when you were in high school. Where did you find Roy- where did you find stories? In that box in our basement. Oh, you, you. But you actually wrote stories. You read them? Yeah. You actually, I feel so violated. But you've actually always been writing stories. Like, that's the thing. Like, I never wrote a story. Like, it never yeah. occurred oh, to I me. Yeah, I did. I wrote lots of stories. Yeah, it never occurred yeah. to me to like, write anything that I wasn't writing for a grade until I was like a grown up and I could get paid to do it. Like, it never occurred to me. I think a lot of people here, and I'm just going to kind of like scan people's eyes and see if this is the thing. I think a lot of times you become an avid reader before you're a writer, and maybe you fall in love with a certain kind of of story or genre and then you go and you try to emulate that in your writing I really got hooked on Alfred Hitchcock kind of twist ending short stories and so that's what I would write I would write like 10 pages and try to come up with the what is the twist ending that the the reader is not going to get and so that's where I kind of thought a lot about structure and form and whatnot, because you could just write something, but if you're telegraphing what the fake ending is, you know, it's, it, there's no punch to it. So when it came time to write a long-form nonfiction book versus writing uh, news articles, you have to kind of figure out, okay, well, how do we get from here to the end, especially if a lot of the readers already know where the, what the end is. The bad guy gets convicted and goes to jail. Right. What do we have to do in the middle that's going to keep their attention? What about you, Laura? When you're growing up, do you have a favorite writer that you would read and want to emulate? Like, did you grow up imagining yourself being a, a certain writer? Um, I definitely did not. I mean, I, I you know grew up the horse crazy girl, so I read like every horse book. Uh, Marguerite Henry was like the big horse book, Misty of Chincoteague, and all those books. And then when I got into high school. I read a lot of smutty romances. Um, <laughs> so who's your favorite writer right now? Oh, God, that's a tough question. Well, one of your favorite. It doesn't have to be like the, you don't have to like narrow it down to one. Do you have like a, a group of writers that you would point um, to and say, like, I love what they're doing? Well, you know, I always like books that I always read. I always read like the latest Kinsey Milhone mystery. That's been a favorite Sue Grafton's book for a long time. Um, I love Edna Buchanan, who used to be crime reporter at the Miami Herald. And she's just very funny in the way that she writes about crime and being a reporter. But I don't really, I mean, I kind of jump all over the place. You know, we just did a recommendations episode. And um, so I got some recommendations from our awesome indie bookstore downtown. The ladies down there know what I like to read. Girl on a Train was a book that I had read earlier this year that I liked. And I said, what are some other books? And they recommended this, uh, The Passenger in Cabin 10, or was it The Woman in Cabin 10? Woman. The Woman in Cabin 10. Toby, you're reading that as well, right? No, I'm reading uh, The Trespasser by Oh, that's right. Front. Front. That's Jennifer right. That's, but I've seen yeah. a lot of social media around that's the Women in Cabin in 10 since you recommend it. People are loving yeah. that book. So it's, it's good, but it, it felt almost too similar to me, to The yeah. Girl on the Train. Yeah. It was just on a boat instead of a train. Right. Domestic suspense. Yeah. But it was it was good. So, you know, I definitely like those books that have the unreliable narrator and the twist at the end that you don't see coming. So it, it kind of varies. I mean, I go all over the place with what I read, kind of depending on what people suggest. Yeah, it's funny because when we do recommendation shows, like we sort of have, I think, patterns of who like our favorite kinds of writers are. And then with you, Laura, it's always like, this is a woman who writes a mystery, but then the, one of the voices in the show is her cat. Oh, that was, oh, Rita Mae Brown. Oh, my God, that was Rita Mae Brown. I love Rita Mae Brown, the fox hunting mystery series. That's like one of my favorites. Toby's always afraid that our listeners are going to choose something and he's going to be forced to listen to a cat monologue. <laughs> no, you, you would like this. It's not done in a cheesy way, Toby. Has anyone? 
when read Rita Mae Brown? Yeah, I love I love the fox hunting mysteries. And they've got this tough old bitty sister Jane who like whips everybody into shape. <laughs> Toby, do you have a favorite writer? Let me give you three. All right, go ahead. The two people who are writing right now that I'm always like keeping an eye out for when their next like you'll read anything that they write. Right. So yeah. like Hillary Mantel, the Wolf Hall trilogy is it's intimidating to read. I think like I read it and I'm like, oh man, like. She's playing a completely different game than I am. Jess Walter is uh, a writer who I really like. And he actually started off doing mysteries and then kind of moved into more literary. But he is um, the book I probably recommend the most to people is Financial Lives of the Poets, which I think, you know, did the best job of at least describing like my experience of the 90s. And then Elmore Leonard was probably the guy who like if anybody was like sort of like I read him and was like I- I'd like to write like I don't write anything like Elmore Leonard I don't even like try and imitate him like the things that he's good at he's really good at dialogue and, yeah the the dialogue I mean he's just he's so solid like of any writer he's got like 40 books and there might be like one or two yeah that I've read and haven't thought you know this is just a great use of my time to read this book and just completely enjoyed it what about you Kevin favorite writer Right now, it's probably Megan Abbott. You know, I just love that she sort of deconstructed noir and put it in uh, new places. But I, I, I like to go back to other writers, like my all-time favorites, John Steinbeck. But I, I will, like, when if I see a Ray Bradbury or a Stephen King or uh, now Dashiell Hammett's going to be probably the one that I'm going to binge on. So, I mean, I think I like the classics. Yeah, it's funny you should mention Stephen King because Stephen King, I think, is um, it's very comforting to read Stephen King books because there are so many things formatically about them that even if it's about a different thing, like, you know, a one page in, like, this is a Stephen King book. It's very much like watching an episode. Well, it's in Maine. There's always, like, a teacher or a writer who's the protagonist. There's always a group of teenage kids, and there's, like, a rotten teenage, like, 13-year-old who's, like, ruining everybody else's lives. He's got pimples and braces. Like, there are just, like, things formatically about those books that I think people really find comforting. But I think as a writer, I appreciate that Stephen King has done so much to advance the profession of writing. Like, that's really why I admire and respect him so much. You know, my favorite writer, as you know, John Irving. Right. Very similar. The books, you one page into it you know you're reading a John Irving book um, they have a sense of place they're all about New Hampshire and New England you know there's always a kid who's lost his mother there's always you know a bear there's probably like some, some wrestling in, some like sexually identity ambiguous characters there's going to be some wrestling but I don't know I mean I, I just I just I love it it informs me but like Toby said around his favorite writers I don't feel like I write in that category and would never try to emulate it you know I'm really curious like what the experience of working writers are in New England. We got some people in the room. I'm wondering, can I can I get a volunteer? Can somebody come up and kind of explain, tell us a little bit about what you're writing? Yeah, come on up. What's Hi. your name? Um, my name's Maureen Milliken. I'm a now former, very recently former journalist. I actually worked at the New Hampshire Union Leader for 25 <gasps> years. Well, I work at NHP. You are in good company. We have a Seacoast yes. uh, yeah, journalist. Yeah, I know, Laura. Yeah, I, I work at New Hampshire Public Radio. Kevin yeah. was at WMUR for yeah. a long time, and it's the idea before that. We are, you're part of the New Hampshire yeah. media landscape. That's right, and I don't always, I used to not always admit I worked for the union leader, but <laughs> I'm, 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 I, it was um, five and a half years ago I left, so I'm kind of over that. I, for the past five and a half years, worked for two newspapers in Central Maine, the Kennebec Journal in Augusta and the Morning Sentinel in Waterville, most recently as the city editor of the Morning Sentinel. I have two published mystery novels they take place in maine cold hard news and no news is bad news oh, I see so you here. can get yeah. yeah are they a series yes they are i'm working on number three right now and the first one cold hard news i was having trouble getting going writing and stephen king i read his on writing Great where book. the basic message yeah. is just right you right. know but the um, real kick in the butt for that was an incident that happened in new hampshire that you guys may remember the Lee O'Kenny Bruce McKay yes. shooting. Sure. Fascinating yeah. story. I was angered that, for those of you who don't know, a young man in Franconia, Lee O'Kenny, and an officer with the Franconia Police Department, Bruce McKay, had a very fractious relationship. And I won't go into all the details, but it ended with Lee at a traffic stop shooting Bruce McKay. Then a bystander, Greg Floyd, who just happened to s- stop and watch the whole thing, took Bruce McKay's gun 
and shot Lee Kenny in the car. Right. Kelly Ayotte, who um, was the AG at the time and is the now Outgoing deposed senator. <laughs> U.S. senator from New Hampshire, the next day, I think it was the next day, I could be wrong now, said that there would be no investigation into Greg Floyd shooting Lee Kenny. Um, basically, he was a hero. You know, he shot a guy who had just shot a cop, and I'm simplifying it, but that made me really angry. But as a journalist at the union leader at the time, there wasn't a lot I could do about that. But I channeled that anger and had a similar situation in my first novel where I resolved it more to my liking. And I'd just like to say, too, that Greg Floyd turned out to be kind of a loose cannon. Now, it's really funny you should mention that story in particular. Now, some of you might have heard of this story in the news because Lee Kenny was Bodie Miller's cousin. So this story made like a little bit of national news and it was characterized, unfortunately, nationally like Bodie Miller has a troublemaking cousin. That was sort of the national right. story that was heard. Now, Kevin and I were very interested in this story as well. And Kevin actually pitched This American Life, a story which we never, I don't think, got a response on it. They said they weren't interested. Yeah. Called He Had It Coming. Mm. Um, and that was about the officer, Bruce McKay. Yes, who, there was. by a lot of accounts, was basically tormenting this poor kid. He was for a large part of his life, following him around, really giving him a hard time. And this kid had real issues. It was not, this was not somebody who was itching to shoot a cop. This was somebody who was living on the edge to begin with. No, there's a lot to the story. And I will say, you know, people have their issues with the union leader, but at the time we covered it pretty well. And you can't really find those stories online because it was before things were going online. Right. But one of the things that interested me as a fiction writer was the way it divided the town of Franconia. And there were as many people who were on Lee Kokenny's side as Bruce McKay's side. And the town, I think the New York Times did an article on it, the town was just, just shredded by it. I explored that a little in my book, too. I found it interesting how in a small town it's not as simple as this kid is a cop killer and everybody's behind the quote-unquote justice. And frankly, I felt yeah, Lee Kenny obviously shouldn't have shot Bruce McKay, but he should have had his day in court. Right. Now, here's my question for you, because I actually said this on our last episode. I think it's true. We wrote a book about the um, Danny Paquette shooting, the 20-year-old cold case, Eric Winhurst. It right. was a big trial in New Hampshire that you probably covered. I rem- Well, I didn't cover it, but I do remember. I right. was an editor. So. so our first book was about that case. I think the most compelling stories come from small towns because there are a lot of dynamics at play. Do you agree? I I agree with that. And um, when I speak as an author about why I write about a small town, a fictional small town, if you have a big city, the possibilities are endless about how somebody got killed. And to me, as a reader and a writer, it's not as interesting a mystery. If it's a small town where everybody knows each other and everybody is good people and that kind of thing, it's much more of a mystery. Why did this happen? Why would somebody do the most awful thing you could do? Who are they? So who's your favorite writer and why? Um, that's hard spot. to say. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, and this is like asking me what my favorite Dylan song is. You can't say. Um, I, I love Richard Russo. Mm-hmm. I think he's a beautiful writer. Um, for dialogue, Eleanor Littman, not mm-hmm. Laura. The first mystery author I read who made me realize character is more important than plot when I was 13 or 14 was Dorothy Sayers write the Lord Peter Whimsey books. I will read any good book by anyone, and I have dozens of favorite writers. Oh, thank you so much for joining us up on the stage. We really well, appreciate it. Thank you for it. asking me. Thank you. Wow, you're right. You're at a writer's conference, you get a real-life writer up on the stage, somebody with roots like ours, Laura. I'm sure you can relate to Fighting the Man, like a story that makes you... When you wrote your book, final question for you, you wrote a true crime book, you're a longtime reporter. Did you choose the story that you wrote about because it somehow made you want to fight the man a little bit? Um, You know, I didn't. I was actually... It's kind of funny how it came about. I was actually focused on another story, and that other story had already been written or was under contract by Kevin... But, but my um, query and my proposal had attracted an agent who thought maybe I was worth keeping on, who, who kind of gave me the rundown on the true crime market. So I kind of looked around in New England for stories that might be interesting. And the case that I wrote about, this guy James Cowan, who was a uh, radio talk show host from Missouri who was leading a double life and moved to Waltham right near here to allegedly attend Harvard, 
was a really, I love like twists and turns and double lives. And it was a really interesting case. And nobody was paying attention to it. Right. Um, because the Neil Entwistle case was happening in the same oh, courthouse yeah, yeah, yeah. at the same time. And so I, I thought I would do a little more work on that. So I did some background and ended up actually connecting with the lead detective, who was just an incredibly nice man. And so that was really what made my decision for me was when I met this detective, I'm like, this guy is a character that needs to be written about. Yeah, one of our books came about that way. It was because yeah. a, a prosec- former prosecutor told us it was the scariest defendant she'd ever prosecuted. And it was a case we weren't interested in until we heard that. <laughs> Was it the guy who burned the lady? Yes. Yeah, that's a scary case. (laughs) Very, very scary case. All right, now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this episode. For those of you unfamiliar, we do a little something near the end called The Crime Crime of of the the Week. A wanted woman in Brisbane, Australia, was finally nabbed by the police. They won't say. Okay, so would you say it again? Brisbane. All right. Are you trying to endear yourself again to yeah, the people of Australia? I, I've got to like, I've got to uh, throw it in. It's like when we said Melbourne and it's Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah. As, as, our, as our guest, Vea Pashas from the uh, Law and Order podcast told us, there's no letter R. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like Boston. All right, I'm going to start that again then. A wanted woman from Brisbane, Australia was finally nabbed by the police. They won't exactly say what she was wanted for or whether she was a dangerous felon, but the interesting thing about her arrest was what she was found smuggling at the time. Cops say she had an adorable baby koala bear in a canvas bag. She told authorities she found the koala on the street. Animal welfare officers say the koala bear was a little bit dehydrated but completely fine. And if he wasn't cute enough, they gave him the name Alfred. Now, panel, for once, we have an adorable crime of the week, but is it the most adorable? So here's my question for you. If you wanted to out-adorable this woman's baby koala, what would you smuggle in a canvas bag? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, I'd smuggle my cat with his VD. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, um, yeah, but Stampy is... Stampy is very adorable, um, despite his issues that he's having right now. Apparently to one filthy cat, he is. <laughs> but I am one of those people, I'm always on social media anytime there's like cute little animal video. But you know, the one that caught my attention recently was there's the baby monkey that rides on the pig. <laughs> Has anyone seen this? There's a whole theme song for it. So... But I think the little hamster that eats the burrito, that, that definitely might win. That's what you're going to smuggle in your I, I'm going to smuggle the little hamster with his burrito. What about you, Toby? If you wanted to smuggle something adorable, what would you smuggle? I would probably smuggle my daughter's kitten, Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's, it's a little bit hard to picture Olaf in a canvas bag. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about you, Kevin? If you were going to smuggle something adorable, what would it be? Uh, adorable? I think it'd be like a bag uh, full of baby booties. That were made in a child sweatshop. <laughs> oh my God, that isn't adorable at all. It's well, horrible. It's, it's part crime, part adorable. It's an adorable crime. Oh, I don't you're know. I'm supposed adorable. to say I would, I would smuggle you, honey. That's what I was going to say. Thought you were, I thought that was an ad. I was waiting for the punchline. Uh, real <laughs> answer, Kevin. <laughs> all right, fine. It's uh, baby booties, but uh, they're being worn by a, a teacup pig <laughs> wearing a cowboy hat and smoking a fake cigar. How's that? I'm with Laura. I really That's enjoy cute. animal videos. I enjoy the baby otters waving. I enjoy the little baby hedgehog eating the little baby pumpkins. That's my favorite. And if I were going to smuggle something... That's exactly what I was smuggling. Or that guy who dressed up as his dog's favorite toy and then let his dog oh, the uh, giant Gumby. jump great. on him. So we should probably end our podcast there. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to find you on social media, how can they find you? At Laura Bricker. That's how you are on the Twitter? That's how I'm on the Twitter. And uh, those cat photos just keep on coming. Now, you Rogue started a new segment last week on our show, uh, The Cat of the Week. What is that about? The Cat of the Week. Well, I've had so many people tweeting their cat pictures at me since I started talking about Mark at the BBC, who was doing the feral cat thing. This is um, so wrong on so many levels. This is so many wrong. So I started the cat of the week last week, and I think I'm going to have to do that again this week. Both let let me announce it, okay? Okay. Now it's time for Laura's favorite part of the episode, <laughs> a little something she has gone rogue and is calling the cat, cat of, of the, the week. week. I think it's going to be Melissa Brock's cat who has herpes in his eye. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. I'm glad there's solidarity in cats with VD. <laughs> what about you, Toby? If our listeners want to reach you on Twitter, how can they do that? Uh, at Toby Ball NH. 
that is the right handle. We have determined that at this point, right? Last week, I I completely spaced my Twitter handle, though the fact I've said it like 45 times, and I, just, <laughs> I cannot bring it up, and I have no excuse. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to reach you on Twitter, how can they do that? Uh, I am at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Follow us on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Email us questions and voice memos at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using our Amazon link at our website, crimewriterson.com. Review the show on iTunes. It really helps us out. And before you close your podcast app, check out our sister show. These are their stories, the Law and Order podcast. Our very handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the Hilton in Dedham at the New England Crime Bank. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. And that's how we do a podcast, guys. Thank you so much for sitting through it. And thank you. Did you just randomly pull her out of the audience, or did you know she was a ringer? No, I don't want to volunteer.